think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 92 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 93rd episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. Oh, I'm Itzin Ranville. And we have a special guest with us this week to discuss all things foreign policy, but really, like, one thing foreign policy, but, you know, uh, Carolyn Dutton. Hi there. Welcome. Uh, doctoral student still? You don't have your... You're not quite there. You're no, not I'm not yet. finished. I'm not a doctor yet. Very um, good. I am COVID willing, um, probably about a year out. Very um, good. But I'm at the University of Ottawa, and um, it's been an exciting week for me because my dissertation is on elections to the Security Council. I wonder why that would be relevant at this particular time. Well, Etienne, if you had been watching the news this week, you would have learned that <laughs> uh, we, in fact, had a, a Security Council election. Oh, uh, I, I missed that. I, yeah. I, was, I was completely unaware. It's funny tell, how that, funny tell that me happens. More. You were just knee-deep in the garden. Um, yes, and it turns out, actually, Canada uh, was not back. Or if it was back, it was back in third. Uh <laughs> beaten out by uh, the Republic of Ireland and uh, the great and holy kingdom of Norway. And there have been a lot of takes on this, I would say. Not some, the country's actual name for people. Some, some gloating, some sad, some feel for the p- poor civil servants who poured their hearts and souls into yes, this. Yes, it ranges from performative sneering to performative grief. And Carolyn is here to help us sort out what the correct take in all of this is. All my takes are indeed correct. That's what I'm hoping for. That's why we've brought in someone much smarter than ourselves to put us on the right path. So, Carolyn, here. what should we what should we think? Is this a big deal? Not a big deal? Funny? Not funny? I think it is expected, but I think that the reasons that people expected expected this result vary. Um, I think there are some priming um, amongst those who just want to see Justin Trudeau suffer. Um, <laughs> I think there are those. Um, no, surely there's not many people in that camp. <laughs> there, there's definitely not one in this room either. Um, or at least one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't count myself out entirely. Um, but I think there are also um, a lot of people who rightly saw Norway and Ireland as extremely strong candidates. Um, and there are those who sort of see through also the myth-making and perhaps empty campaign rhetoric of... Um, our campaign of Canadian foreign policy more broadly. Um, But I think within that group, there's also a divide. Um, There are a lot of calls amongst pundits, amongst academics right now for, you know, a full review of Canadian foreign policy. A new foreign policy strategy where we bring everyone together. Yeah, a reinvestment and a restart. Um, And I think that comes from this place of thinking that Canada has no foreign policy direction or vision or guiding principle. Um, And then perhaps those of us who are a little more cynical say that, well, in fact, maybe it's not that we don't have a foreign policy. Maybe it's just not the same one that we say we have. I actually kind of think they're more cynical than you are in that. I think think they just want think tank jobs and they don't think we have enough of them. (laughs) That's true. We have no think tank jobs. Yeah, which, you know, is fine. They don't produce a lot of value. Let let me start with the no No foreign policy, though. Because, so, in the, what, five years of the Trudeau government thus far, um, we started with Stéphane Zion as our foreign minister. Um, Who is definitely a guy you cannot knock for not having ideas. You can knock him for many things. If I'm not mistaken, he gave several speeches where he sort of laid out his vision of Canadian foreign policy. Yes, and there was that book from Justin Coulomb, who was his close advisor a couple of years ago, that kind of laid out a 
alternative vision that I think was closer to Stefan's. Who I think in that book, I have not read it, um, but from what I've heard, I think it may have been um, both from, I heard it from a friend and then also I think it was in Paul Wells's review of the book um, that he disclosed that I think in the first year of government, um, Trudeau and Dion did not have a one-on-one meeting. Yes. And... Owned. I mean, I think there was some very clear tension to the public as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if I'm not mistaken, there was an anecdote in there of them being on the plane together and Stéphane Dion going up to him on the plane and trying to talk foreign policy and Trudeau just being completely disinterested. Um, and I think it was somewhat alienating to Stéphane Dion, who never, never... I mean, even when Stéphane Dion was leader of the party, never did he have a particularly close relationship with Justin Trudeau at the mm-hmm. time. Um, as Justin Trudeau was sort of winning his candidacy. Um, so it's sort of, there was a Stéphane Dion where it sort of seemed like Stéphane Dion had a direction he wanted to take things, but it wasn't endorsed by the center and it didn't really go anywhere. And then, if I'm not mistaken, Christia Freeland was the next foreign minister. And she gave this sort of much heralded speech uh, in the House of Commons where she sort of laid out Canada's foreign policy vision which was sort of a new sort of quasi-budget speech of like a foreign policy vision that wasn't really a custom in Canadian parliamentary tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, And then from there, it sort of got subsumed by NAFTA. And now we have Champagne, who is um, largely consumed by being not a flight attendant, but a travel agent (laughs) to Canadians um, all over the world trying to get back home post-COVID. And it, it just strikes me that so far... I don't, there have been a lot of sort of big moments where a lot of big declarations were made. Canada's back. Famously. But I don't know that there has been a lot of substance uh, behind it at Global Affairs. Um, would, would you agree with that? that? Like going into this, a lot of other countries might have been confused about where our actual foreign policy position, positions were on a lot of major issues. So I think on the one hand, yes. But on the other hand... I think there's a sort of international perception that our foreign policy positions are always going to be, especially at this moment where things are somewhat more volatile, um, exactly what will please uh, those south of the border. Yeah. Um, And so while there are ways in which, particularly sort of the campaign priorities of things like strengthening multilateralism, promoting economic security, addressing climate change, etc., where those were kind of seen as empty. I think they are both empty, but also um, just very disconnected from Canada's actual international positions, especially within the UN. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, you know, countries that we wanted votes from, um, other multilateral bodies um, that would be important for us to be in the good books with, Um, started to see through that or see the difference um, in some of our positions. So, you know, I can't speak for what CARICOM, the uh, Caribbean regional organization, necessarily thinks of Canada because I don't know. Um, But like Mexico, they took a very strong position of non-intervention on the ongoing crisis in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And Canada certainly had the option of not taking the yeah. let's stick with Donald Trump approach yeah. and didn't do that. Yeah, and the same and thing with Bolivia too. Bolivia as well. Yeah. Um, and then the, the Trump-Bolsonaro axis. Canada then found itself 
wondering why it had to campaign in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, and when you think about the position that we take on a lot of international issues, that becomes more aligned with the U.S. these days and less aligned um, with European partners, yeah. with um, Caribbean and Latin American friends. Um, and so it starts to become somewhat clear um, that Canada is trying to sort of push this one position of we are a cooperator, we care about multilateralism, but on the other hand, the thing that we're doing is really the opposite and sort of staying, um, even if we're participating in a lot of fora, mm -hmm. um, we're not really doing anything unique there. Sure, Whereas yeah. Ireland really um, harnessed the idea of being a small country and being a friend to other small countries. Yeah. Um, and that certainly, Canada's I think both inflated sense of self of we don't want to admit that we're a small country, <laughs> um, but also that we're constantly just following the US yeah. makes it hard to become appealing to large numbers of small countries. Yeah, and I think there, there was a little bit of, um... I saw from, from a lot of, of lefty people that there was a bit of, you know, gloating about, like, you know, the, the, the three mining companies in a trench coat not winning. And it's worth saying that the competition was uh, a tax haven and a pension fund attached to an oil company, right? Like, that's what Norway and Ireland essentially are, mm -hmm. other way around, uh, Ireland being the tax haven, Norway being the pension fund with an oil company. Uh, like, but yeah, I mean, like, they're not exactly all people whose, like, economic stances vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world are, are you know less extractive and like less bad uh but for yes i, I think we get a lot of you know canadian people looking at canada and saying here are the problems with their own country is, is perhaps productive in the sense that that's the one we can fix in a lot of ways yeah, but yes it was just I, I i think the gloating was a little a little far yeah and it, it, i i don't know if it's necessarily that the gloating was necessarily far but i think um, Perhaps I just a little a lot of have a lot more independence. Yeah, well, in that's the critical right? point. Yeah, and that's I, I'm essentially when it comes to Canada a bit of a foreign policy nihilist in the sense that I think we are for all, like we are not functionally nearly as sovereign a country as Ireland or Norway are in the sense that our policy horizons are enormously predicated by the U.S. And where Ireland and Norway have policy horizons predicated by the EU, that is a much, A, an organization with less of a clear policy agenda. Mm -hmm. And Norway's um, not actually a member. They're not, but they're yeah, in the they're, European economic yeah. area and everything. Yeah. So they, they're still quite closely tied. Yeah. Uh, this was like the argument with Brexit was like, oh, we could be like Norway, which is like, you have to follow all the rules, but don't get any say in making them. Sounds good. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, <laughs> I saw a, um, a quote from an EU diplomat actually this week basically saying um, we're really happy Ireland is here because yeah. one more EU member on the council is always great mm -hmm. um, and it was very much dripping in we're really glad that someone who likes to stick it to the UK is here <laughs> um, and there have been a lot of Ireland is the country with like the one of the world leading records in sticking it to the, <laughs> exactly. to the UK so um, and there were, there were certainly themes of that in their campaign, but there's been a lot, really since about 2016, 2017, a lot of moves within the council and EU members um, to sort of symbolically and indirectly yeah. um, protest Brexit. So yeah. in 2017, after that election, um, it was going into multiple rounds between Italy and the Netherlands. 
and they decided to make the very rare move to split a term, taking a year each. Interesting. Um, essentially, you know, for a lot of reasons, but what you can sort of read in that is, especially in a lot of their statements, that you know, pan-European cooperation and working together yeah. was important to them, and that. Yes. Things are better when you cooperate and not when yes. someone's left out. Though now, three years later, the Dutch are like hard pressed against like doing anything productive for the the southern part of the the economic block there. Oh, but certainly. that's and it another... really has a much different government. Yes, yeah, that's also true. Uh, one one more quick point uh, before Tan launches into it is the uh, no, fair enough. Is the um... you mean brings us back on track well, is of the, 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 other... of the Canadian the... story? Well, yeah, but it's, there's the the U.S., but there's also China. As, as part of like the sort of economic and political reality that we are intrinsically linked to. I, I think I've mentioned this perhaps in the past on the show. If not, I've certainly mentioned it to Etienne a couple of times. That, I, you know, the conservatives like to talk very tough about China, but we need to get tough on China. And frankly, the reality is that when China, on whatever flimsy pretext, starts imposing soft economic blockades on Canadian goods. Like, I mean, we're seeing some of that yeah, right now. But like, I remember how mad farmers from the West were when canola exports were being targeted and beef exports and pork mm. exports. And it's like, the conservatives can talk a big game out of power about being very tough on China, but the reality is that like we have a agricultural economy, especially, but also many other parts of our economy that are very, 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 very linked to China. And as we've been finding out uh, with the, the COVID crisis as well as our supply chains are all there too. Uh, sort of, you know, global supply chains generally, but it, the reality is just that we are really hemmed in between two superpowers, neither of whom we can really afford to piss off all that much, and who have competing interests. So our actual, you know, ability to avoid reefs and shoals is very, very limited. Okay, let's let's put aside the high-level ideological conversation for a moment. And talk about the tangibles of this Security Council. Let's talk about the letter openers. Let's get them. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, I, I've been calling it sort of an 11th hour Security Council bid. Because it really struck me that in the 2019 campaign, it, this was sort of the centerpiece of the Liberals' foreign policy. I, I don't know if it was actually in the campaign or in the mandate letters that came out post-campaign. I believe it was the mandate letters. Yeah, where all of a sudden, the UN Security Council seat that previously, like, two people at GAC had been assigned to winning by themselves, suddenly was in the mandate letter, and six months out, or seven months out maybe, it was suddenly going to be a big push, when two-plus years ago, when the UN was begging us to do more in Africa... We were sending Harjitsa John and uh, I can't remember who else was on that campaign, but touring for countries to intervene in. They eventually settled on Mali. Yeah, do you guys have any years, regional wars we can years, help out in? <laughs> years later, long running insurgencies. They, this kind of they thing. sent less than they were asked. They were asked to renew the camp or the uh, the Operation Mali. It okay. wasn't renewed. Um, so it seemed like there wasn't a huge commitment until you know January when it was all of a sudden. We need to win the Security Council seat. Is that sort of this, the background as you understand it? Yes, I think to some degree. I think um, part of it as well was the shift in ministers. Um, sure. I think Minister Champagne took a much more um, personal interest um, in doing it. And sort of, I think Freeland was very busy. Um, yes, yeah. NAFTA infamously. Yeah, um, but I think... In some ways, part of the under-resourcing of the campaign. So, 
you joke about two people. From what I understand, um, the it team, was three people. <laughs> the team um, in Ottawa and in New York um, was about eleven, um, drawing on a few other resources um, of people in the department from time to time when those people had time and energy. Um, but certainly, ten or eleven, you know, smart, hardworking people who put in an extraordinary number of hours, but without necessarily the political leadership at the ministerial level um, under Freeland. Um, and certainly, you know, just not enough of them. Um, Covering the entire world with 11 civil servants yeah. and trying to woo high level. Because it strikes me that, I mean, I guess this is a, a fundamental question, is how much of the campaign is done at sort of the political level of Trudeau phone banking world leaders and how much of it is the pounding the pavement in sort of the global international diplomatic fora where civil servants are drinking with each other after hours so or somewhere good, in between. Yeah, it's a good combination. Um, and certainly, you know, whenever there's a major international gathering or major diplomatic visit of any sort, um, there's a consideration for the campaign that goes in every time. Um, but from a lot of the sort of research on the Security Council, um, what tends to be a conclusion is that so much of what matters is what's happening in New York. Um, and especially in... It's small, a big apple, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Greatest city in the world. <laughs> especially with um, smaller countries, um, their UN ambassadors um, tend to have a lot of power. One, one point we should mention here for anyone not familiar with the voting process, because I understand this to be sort of fundamental to yeah, I can everything, the is, is the, technical, the yes. technicality of how they vote or how the yeah. vote works. Yeah, but all that to say that there are a lot of countries where the ambassador in New York makes the decision. Yeah. Um, so whatever you're doing abroad doesn't really matter. Um, you know, Justin Trudeau could make a phone call to a leader, but in some countries it's okay that the UN ambassador is like, no, I'm not voting for them. So they also don't know, right? Because it is a secret is a ballot secret cast by. So no one knows except for. No. Though some sometimes it's, um, you know, they'll say openly what happened, or you know, it will become public information. So there are a few instances of that. Um, I saw. Um, and I don't have the original source that Adam has, but Adam Chapnick, who is an even more um, later, much later in his career and level of experience expert on the UNSC than I am, um, he has a fantastic book on essentially the history of all of Canada's uh, work yes, yes, yes. on the UNSC. Yeah. Um, but I saw in one of his tweets um, this week um, that India has essentially said that they didn't vote for us because we're not in favor of giving them a permanent seat. Right, that's been a long-standing issue. And that's been a long-standing yeah. issue. Um, and so there's four countries that want um, permanent seats. Um, Germany, Brazil, Japan, and India. Yeah. Um, and so those sorts of those sorts of issues are long standing. Hey, why doesn't have Germany have a permanent seat? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> You lost your chance, honey. <laughs> um, and similarly, um, there tend to be sort of agreements in place. So like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand tend to say like, we're going to vote for each other. We won't necessarily compete with each other. Yeah. Same with interest Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. um, They're always up to something. But from what I understand this time, 
Um, so there's also something where is it okay if I get into some of the some of the technical details? That's why you're here. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. You're <laughs> cut off. Laura, cut her microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I knew not to do that. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the UN has 193 members. Um, each region of the world um, has sort of a regional caucus. Um, so there is the Western Europe and Others group, which Ooh, we're another. Yeah, Canada belongs to. It is exactly what you think it is. Plus, uh, the rest of the Anglosphere, Israel, and Turkey. Okay. Wait, really? Turkey also That's double, a weird one. <laughs> Turkey also double caucuses. They've moved around, but they also they also caucus with Asia. That's a hmm. whole other thing. That, but right. they run in the WIOG group. Okay. Um, there is the Latin America and Caribbean group. Um, the Spanish acronym that gets used in all languages is called GRULAC. Um, Asia and Africa. Cool name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like El Grupo something Latino Americano. Caribbean. Carib yeah, I don't speak Spanish, <laughs> but when I see it, I know what it means. Um, Africa and Asia um, have a big group um, of a whole five seats, so half of them, but it tends to be split into two. Okay. Um, two for Africa, three for Asia. Um, and then there is an Eastern Europe group as well. Just one seat, I would imagine. Yeah, it's just one seat. So Western Europe and others has two seats. Um, they can both come up every two years. Um, we had three competitors for two seats this time. So the way that a ballot would look um, would be there's sort of the number of lines on it per seats available, and you fill in of all of the competitors um, one per line. Okay. So you would vote in theory for two of the three candidates, um, Ireland, Canada, Norway. Now, if you are one of the three candidates, um, you're probably not going to vote for a second candidate. You're just going to leave that line blank. I, this is obviously strategy, but what's the... Well, you don't necessarily know um, who your biggest competitor is. So you so want you them to not hit the, a threshold. Yeah, because if they, if, they, if they get over the line to, by one to vote, trigger another, you feel kind of dumb. Yeah. 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 In, so, order, in order to push it to yeah. other rounds of balloting. And so other they will also convince sort of their small group of friends to also Do leave... Do single candidate. Leave some blank. Um, from what I understand also... Um, is that New Zealand usually does that for Canada, and we do it for them. But they, I assume they voted for us, but I know that they did fill in two lines this time. Um, Jacinda is absolutely just ruthless. Yeah. Ruthless. Um, so the way that... Their new chancellor, Saruman, has, uh, <laughs> has been filling their mind with lies. <laughs> so with 193 countries, two votes each, um, this time there was one abstention, I don't know who it was, um, and then if you haven't paid your dues to the UN that year, you're not able to vote. Fair enough. Um, is there so, any, like, did the, is the United States outstanding on their bills? No. no. So interesting, this year, um, Security Council Report is a research group in New York, and they reported um, earlier in the month that the Central African Republic and Venezuela had not paid yet. Mm. Um, but in the end, um, there was only one country that didn't vote. So I don't know which what, of One of them was. had paid... One of them maybe paid up to cast their vote. Uh, I wonder if it was uh, Venezuela, because um, they have a. Uh, they have a lot going on. Yeah. They have a lot going on. on. Um, Guaido showed up and he declared himself the, uh, <laughs> the ambassador to the UN. He was like, "I'm here to cast the vote." Um, so, all that to say that 
um, the threshold when you do the math um, to get a seat. 130? 128 this time. One twenty. So the threshold Dumb. can vary based on who abstains, who doesn't vote. Sure. Um, so Ireland got exactly 128. That's math, baby. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you get them. Yeah, Ireland. Norway got 130 and Canada got 108. So Ireland and Norway... Um, I heard rumors of a recount because it was so close, but they were really right on the threshold, basically. Yeah. Um, and so, if you are, um, if you are the third country, um, yes, Max. Question. <laughs> so, yeah. So if you're the you third country, it doesn't really matter what you get. Like that doesn't really indicate how well you did. Yeah. Because really, it comes down to where are the votes on number two. Yeah. Because let's say Ireland lost five votes and didn't meet the threshold, you wouldn't know whether they've gone to the first or the third. Right. Um, necessarily. Um, so as the sort of third place, if you think you're going to be third, what you're really hoping for is a second round. Yeah, right? yeah, obviously, because then you have room to pick people off who voted exactly. for the first guy and didn't really have stock yeah. feelings. But also time. the other thing there is that 130, 128, and 108 do not equal everybody filling out both lines yeah it makes sense with so what you said are, earlier yeah. with the from one what, yeah so from what i understand there are 16 lines left blank so that's a handful of friends plus the three Six, countries 16 themselves. countries minus yeah. let's say three 13 countries that were bffs with someone that they wanted exactly. to do only single line line line. For. so there's like room there to like pull a rabbit out of a hat yeah theoretically yeah. yeah and like justin trudeau in fairness to him does seem like the kind of guy who could pull that particular mm -hmm. rabbit out of that particular hat yeah, we were really, we were extremely close to a second round. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Ireland was like right on the ball there. Yeah. Yeah. So if, you know, even if it had just been like Norway got one more vote. Yeah. We would have been forced into a second round because Norway was popular. That yes. really had less to do with Ireland and Canada. Yeah. Everyone loves Norway. Everyone remember, remember the Argyle pants they had at the Olympics a couple oh, years ago for, uh, for, uh curling that was good everyone loves that <laughs> but so norway and ireland had been campaigning as i understand it much longer and much more actively than canada was hence sort of canada's 11th hour characterization they've been campaigning effectively for years yeah like yeah, that's part a of a decade, decade. That yeah trudeau was showing up this year to countries that had been visited by the leaders of those countries you know years ago who, while, who while campaigning for the same <laughs> he's, he's such a nice guy. <laughs> and like Trudeau was supposed to go visit the CARICOM nation or go to the CARICOM uh, and then we had the meeting in crisis. March. Yeah. No, sorry, it wasn't in March. It was the Witsu. It, was, it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it was, oh, the other crisis. <laughs> COVID, yes. Um, what? This government just being bad at stuff. Happens regularly. Yeah. Yes, it does. The other thing that I've heard is that the... Uh, the lineup for the next election in two years mm -hmm. is Switzerland and Malta. I believe that's no true. offense to Switzerland and Malta, but Ben to Malta, we're not, great, we're not, great, great country. We're not talking Norway and Ireland here when it comes to like mm -hmm. people with like a lot of international cachet. I mean, like Switzerland, perhaps a little more. Malta, perhaps a little less, in the sense that it's an island country with. In, Switzerland, in the very little going on. Historically neutral. Who would want to pick neutral, their team? Also, also tax haven. Uh, like <laughs> you know, like a mining company too, and a trench coat. Uh, also, also, yeah, they've got all those sort of lovely things that everyone loves. Um, so, why was the decision taken to go after this one against the tough lineup rather than the next one with more runway with an easier competition? 
So I also saw... Um, and, and can we run for that one? Can we? I mean, evidently, we can put together a bid in about six months. <laughs> so can we, I think, in theory, yes. There's not a, this, a hard, like, you run once, you can't run again for five years. or No. Um, the norm, though, is that you don't. Like, I don't think it would look very good. <laughs> yeah. um, but as far as I know, and Looks I may be wrong, desperate. but... Um, but no, I don't think there's anything technically stopping okay. us. Yeah. Um, I had also seen um, in some news reporting that um, experts at GAC had also advised waiting as long as, like, 2029. Um, and so certainly there was advice to this government given um, that this probably wasn't the best one to be in. Um, but what's really fascinating to me um, about both 2010 and this year is that they are unique in the history of Canadian campaigns, but also um, pretty globally amongst historical campaigns in terms of being explicitly partisan. Hmm. That's something we hadn't seen before. Um, like, for example, the 1988 campaign, um, Joe Clark was foreign minister, uh, but Stephen Lewis was our ambassador to the UN. Right. And it was a three-party effort. Um, historically, before that, they were even sort of more transpartisan. Um, and in 1998, um, with Lloyd Axworthy as foreign minister, um, they had support from all the other parties as well. And so I think part of what happened this year, um, and I don't know if that sort of, you know, a new trend was set in 2010 or sort of any of the major shifts in Harper's foreign policy or, you know, Trudeau and his advisors sort of own errors. Um, but I think in making this like the last one sort of very explicitly partisan, I mean, they put, you know, real change, etc. As... on the GAC website. <laughs> but I think in making it explicitly partisan and knowing also the sort of constraints of our democracy and our election cycle, etc., etc., I think if they felt that they wanted to win one, under the liberal brand, it really had to happen at this exact point. Yeah. But, it, like, it seems to me that two years is still, like, a time horizon where it's totally, like, you know, this government is in theory here through that time period, at least 2022. Right. But I don't think they knew that in 2015. Right. When they, fit, point. Because when they the campaigning had yeah, 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 okay. But normally, in sort of Canadian history and in a lot of other countries... You're not thinking about your electoral timeline. Right. You're thinking this is... Good for the nation. Exactly. Um, and thinking that, you know, the benefits of a Security Council seat, no matter the government, are, you know, going to be useful. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Ireland didn't even have government until 48 hours before yes. the election. <laughs> you know, their this election... Is true, in yeah. They had an election in February. They've campaigned for 10 years. They had an election in February, that, and they could not form a government between all of the parties. Irish politics is the funniest thing ever also. Yeah. They're just two literally identical parties who just hate each other's guts. We're, we're not, we're not doing Irish politics. It's so funny though. <laughs> it is literally <laughs> my favorite. We're, we're putting that genie back into the bottle. We're not going there. It's my favorite politics to read about because these guys are like, oh, I hate those, oh, I hate those guys. They believe <laughs> the exact same things we do and it's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> that was so, the worst Irish accent I've ever done. It's a much more nonpartisan effort 
in yeah. other countries. And so that's why they can campaign for 10 years because they're not worried it, it about It transcends governments right. as opposed to... It does, they're not worried about a change of government. They can continue the campaign under essentially a caretaker government for the last five months. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a really big problem for Canada is if we're going to do this again, um, how are we going to do it in a way... So, that has a long-term timeline. So is our foreign policy more partisan than it would be in, like, in Ireland versus or in Ireland and Norway? I, I don't know that... Like, I don't think it is necessarily. I think it's maybe the campaign itself that can be set aside. Yeah. But I think, I don't know, the liberal brand wants to think of its foreign policy as really different. Yeah. And I would, it's not that I much, again, say, that following yeah. the U.S. all the time. hundred percent. The conservative and liberal approaches to foreign policy are fundamentally very similar. There are rhetorical differences in emphasis, for sure, uh, as, as we've learned. Like on China, for instance, where both parties, I think, would be constrained by reality with very similar policies. On the U.S., where, you know, there's a, a certain subtle disapproving aura coming from the Trudeau government all the time that might not be as apparent in a conservative one. Like, this kind of thing. But at the end of the day, like, they're all, you know, every free trade deal we can sign, etc. Like, all this stuff doesn't really change that much. Yeah, I mean, even so, a major issue on this campaign, because countries do pay attention to how you vote in the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. They notice the stance that you take on major issues. Um, so... Since the beginning of the Harper government, Canada has voted no on almost all, well, all resolutions on Palestinian self-determination until uh, this past winter, it was probably November or December, yeah. yes. um, where it changed to a yes vote. Uh, I mean, UNGA resolutions are, you know, they're not Any. particularly Wasn't yes. that actually even an abstention? It wasn't even a yes? It, this time it was this a yes This was a yes, okay. This okay. was a yes vote. Um, if you remember one time there was an abstention and that was like big news. Yeah. Um, and so countries notice how you vote and that was a change. Um, I also saw that the ambassador, uh, Blanchard, had sent out a letter um, on issues of Israel-Palestine, Palestinian self-determination, um, sort of at the very 11th hour, like two days before mm -hmm. the campaign. Um, but, I mean, part of that is noticing that being Canada, the U.S., and three island states in the Pacific as sort of the island of pushing back against any moves towards peace yeah. is unpopular. Um, the EU positions have shifted. Norway, obviously, has a very special relationship with the conflict with right. um, working towards peace settlement. I mean, there's a reason we refer to Oslo in 1994. Right. Um, and Ireland, certainly both rhetorically and sort of following shifts in EU policy, um, speak to that issue in a much more um, popular way internationally. Um, so certainly that is a policy that did not change in most years of Trudeau so far and all of the Harper years. Yeah. Because um, that's the following the U.S. thing. It, it seemed like a singular vote at the 11th hour in Wasn't order gonna... to pander to the popular consensus. Yeah. Like, do I think, um, reading that, that Canada is going to be particularly even-handed, more interested in human rights, 
um, and you know, valuing um, valuing efforts for peace now. No, I think Canada is still going to be particularly American in their stance. Yeah. So you you said something a couple minutes ago, which was the benefits of the seat uh, that I think uh, we haven't really talked about yet. No. Uh, there's been a lot of skepticism around uh, mm. around various circles about what those actually are. So I think a good place to start this conversation is not sort of in the rhetorical, you know, it gives us power abroad, et cetera, et cetera, or a bigger voice at the More table. crystal. <laughs> More access to the special be- crystal Better, lines. fancier crystal to drink out of. But like, we were talking about this before we started recording, which is what is the, like everyone talks about it, but no one really describes what the day-to-day is of the United States Security Council. How does it work? Um, what are people doing? What does it look like? Like, is it like a parliament? Is it people sitting around the table every other Tuesday and drinking beer, like somewhere in between? It's just like the West Wing all the time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so um, the council itself um, is a pretty full-time operation of a lot of different things. So on the one hand, they um, manage, obviously, sort of peacekeeping operations, military issues, etc. On the other hand, um, they also deal with international criminal tribunals. Um, They deal with any sort of smaller UN organizations that have to report to them. Um, And then they also deal with um, all sorts of other international issues that may come onto the agenda. So... um, in like this month, something that is on the agenda is, you know, a briefing from the High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, they also recently have done um, a ton of work on essentially life after the Iran deal. Now that Trump has dismantled that, what does um, nuclear disarmament look like? What does cooperation between the US and Iran look like? What does that look like for everyone who's not one of those two countries? Um, and then they've also been aiming and failing to really come to a lot of agreement on um, COVID-related issues. Um, and so, you know, there are monthly and quarterly meetings on, you know, handfuls of countries in crisis around the world all the time. Um, there are representative visits to those crisis areas. Do So monthly meetings on crises do does that then issue direction through UN agencies to take action in the various parts of the world? Yes, it can. Okay, so there's a direct connection between yes. the Security Council and directing sort of the various apparatus. Yes, that the um, UN especially has at when its it comes disposal. to. Um, I mean, we don't see it that often, but military intervention, um, but also managing existing peacekeeping oper- uh, operations, um, humanitarian aid. Um, so something that, you know, small countries took a really big interest in for a while, I believe it was Luxembourg, New Zealand in particular, um, and I'm blanking on the other one or two countries there, um, but were really the countries that stayed on top of humanitarian aid in Syria for the time during their terms. Um, so monitoring things like medical supplies and food aid, etc. From that sort of flows through UN agencies, a lot of the governance of that was really undertaken by particular elected members for a few years. Is it, is it fair to characterize it as both somewhat the executive 
like to put it into Canadian parliamentary terms, mm. would the Security Council be sort of the equivalent of both like PMO and PCO of yes. the yes, sort of, of roughly, and I think it was a little bit sort of designed like that, but you know didn't really follow through as sure. intended. Um, interestingly, um, I am reading some of the early scholarship on um, how. The, the design of the Security Council and a really interesting place um, that um, I found that, and this is through teaching that I'm doing, is um, in the work of W.E.B. E. B. Du Bois um, and talking about what that sort of executive looks like as um, a coalition of imperial powers, essentially. Hell yeah, brother. Um, so that's what I'm reading right now. But um, all that to say that, yes, it sort of has that role and it's um, able to take decisions like that. It has a secretariat, too. Um, and obviously the diplomats of each of the countries with the seat are um, constantly doing the work on researching the issues, reporting on the issues, um, involved in visits, involved in consultations with other countries. Um, Involved with some of the other secretariats of the UN, mm -hmm. um, so like the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, um, things like that. So um, it's a very big undertaking and it's very busy. Um, so you have to be really committed to doing the work if you want a to be useful um, and b to get any recognition for that. Yeah. Um, but then on the flip side of that is. Um, you have access to things like the agenda, to um, being sort of having a voice in a body that can make decisions. Um, you become sort of a hot commodity because other countries know that you have privileged access to the permanent five. So suddenly there is a sort of political currency there that you can make deals with other countries who want your help talking to China talking to the U.S. Yeah, though and, I, and then you have those benefits too. You have a much, much more privileged access to powerful countries. Um, yeah. So I guess my, my follow-up question to that is, like, what would a successful term for Canada have looked like, right? Because I think, like, you look at, like, our inability to talk to China about things yeah. uh, is, you know, I don't think anybody would come to Canada for any lessons on how to do that uh, for a variety of reasons. And it's like, yeah, what, what would a successful term have looked like and was that really in the cards given, you know, a variety of political factors, a sort of management style in this government that is not super amenable to hard long-term projects? Because, like, I don't know what we were planning to do yes. with Does the seat. It was a bit of a dog catching it, the car at yes. the time, It was, yeah. uh, the seat will be good and will make us powerful. What we will do with that power is good things. Yes. But yeah, do you have a sense of, of what that would have looked like? Or do you have any best guesses or you know informed analysis of what you think would have been a good use of it? So I think I have a sense of what some good initiatives would have been. Works for um, me. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that Canada <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah, no, not sure that Canada is necessarily proposing them. Okay. Um, like, so, did we run on, do you run on sort of a similar platform or is your platform more, it always seems to be your track record of what you've recently done rather than here are the things we intend to use it for? So a little bit of both. So Canada's whole thing was stronger together, um, but it had, they identified five priorities. So sustaining peace together, 
Addressing climate change together. <laughs> Promoting economic security ensemble. <laughs> Advancing gender equality together. Strengthening multilateralism together. So why just the one ensemble? That would be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've, walked by, yeah. I've walked by the sign that says together ensemble <laughs> so many times. Very good. Um, but when you sort of is it wait? Is it broken down more than that? Like, is there like a so a the, bulleted list of priorities under those sort of macro headings? There is, um, but at least publicly, they're pretty vague. I mean, you we don't know what they've told other countries behind closed doors. Sure. So you know, something like on the gender equality platform, they may have said that. Um, they're going to increase funding um, within a particular part of the feminist international assistance um, policy to a region of the world, and but that's a that's that a Canadian that's within the Canadian yes okay yes, powers right. It's not like a promise to do things yes. with. The power because yeah. they can't really promise. It's like Vanuatu. We are going to put you on the agenda. <laughs> yeah. Nagorno Karabakh. We are going to figure that one out. That's sort of the like. That's sort of what I'm okay, reading yeah, yeah. as like the the complexity of running for this seat. Right? Is you're running for the Security Council is 15 members. Yep. And you're not going to have absolute control oh, over God, no. any yeah. of it. You can sort of just notionally promise to bring things up every now and again. And yeah. the tangible promises seem to be, we're going to use our taxpayers' dollars to do X, Y, Z, or we're going to retune our foreign policy or our uh, our international assistance review to focus on your country or things along those lines. Right. Okay. So here's an interesting one. Um, so climate change. The we're council... going to stop climate change. <laughs> I know. Is, that, is that what we ran on? Yeah. So um, the council itself tends to be in a bit of a deadlock on whether. Um, climate change initiatives are actually within the purview of the council. So that's one of those issues that the P5 are pretty torn about. So Canada's sort of public website, um, again, things happen that we don't see. Um, the public website um, says that Canada will consistently raise climate change um, as a fundamental issue of peace and security recognize that it's an existential threat to vulnerable countries um, and advocate for the creation of a new special representative of the secretary general um, and that special representative will cover climate security hmm. so canada here has inherently taken a position within the security council sure. on whether they think that climate change should matter to the council sure um, but they don't really talk at all about how they're going to navigate that conflict and what it means to um, actually put that on the council's agenda. Yeah. Um, I mean, also, as you said, an oil company in a trench coat. Um, so we can put all sorts of nice graphics about- It's, it's actually a pea coat, or we're very well dressed. <laughs> um, you know- Trench coats are so menacing and have such a bad <laughs> reputation. But isn't that what oil companies wear? Aren't oil companies menacing? Well, yeah. not, not, you're not gonna get the most sympathetic ear from the <laughs> on that one. <laughs> Um, but so all that to say that there isn't a whole lot of specifics from Canada on that one. Like it wasn't clear, you know, in terms of understanding how to navigate the dynamics and yeah. what that was going to look like. Sure. I mean, in some fairness to the government, I hate saying that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like you look at party platforms, 
like it's not like I'm gonna overcome Manitoba's objections to re-indexing CPP contributions <laughs> by promising them this preferential treatment on hydropower with regard yeah. to access to Midwestern American market. Like, right? It's just like yeah. it's a level of detail no one really needs. Yeah. But in in this case, it's not a real thing, by the way. No one gets like that. That's not a. I know it's not a thing. But just pick words. so my my takeaway from that though is that you know you read a party platform and they know they are going to have absolute control over the executive branch. Yes. And here it's sort of a, we're going to be one of 15 people brokering a role on the executive. Sure, yeah. So it's it's a step above in terms of, we're, we're positionally, these are our views, and yeah. we're going to push towards a special representative on yeah. everything so imaginable. And I, I guess but yeah, that, that actually, one is tangible. This might come much more naturally to countries where... Parties are basically putting forward negotiating positions to have with other parties in a coalition process. Yeah, that's true. And I think... Um, it's a bit different yeah. in terms yeah. of like the, the permanent temporary dynamics of the council and everything. But like that might be closer. Yeah, and if, if you can sort of... I mean, if you're a UN rep and you look at like, here's the dynamic of the people on the security council and here's all their positional statements. We can see where sort of the coalitions are going to be. How many people are going to be on the coalition on interventionism in Syria or climate change or whatever the issue du jour yeah. is. And you can sort of get a sense of where there is a critical mass tilting sure. in, in a given direction. Yeah. And I mean, I think some of that too, there's the section on gender equality um, and relating to the sort of resolutions on women, peace and security. Um, I'm not sure how well Canada would have done on that, especially in relation to Ireland and Norway, um, because I think so much of Canada's initiatives, um, particularly on women, peace and security, have been sort of slightly poor attempts to bring more women into peacekeeping, um, which that, that's a whole other podcast on sort of the, sure. flaws, <laughs> on the flaws of that. Um, but where there were specifics um they're sort of a little bit half-hearted okay. um and not that ambitious just, so i think this has all just been tremendously helpful to give a sense of what we're actually running on because yeah. if you're just a general member of the public or even a uh one of us who watches every single press conference i i knew none of this i didn't know yeah, what we yeah. were running on because when asked about it in a political press conference my brain also just turns off after a couple seconds of trudeau ease of trudeau like, says yeah. you know this is a very important thing for our country and we're going to do very important things though, though i mean in some fairness like this has been consistently what they've talked about is like women and gender equality climate change uh, especially those two things, really, and you know, some degree on the security stuff is like kind of what they've emphasized publicly so, to the domestic market. Remind me of the results of the uh, international assistance review. We have sort of our broad foreign policy statement and our new um, international assistance policy. A lot of these were sort of like the cross-cutting themes that GAC operates on yes. for quite literally everything. Um, it strikes me as these are basically the guiding principles of GAC, regardless of the United Nations right now. Have we now. Uh, defined GAC for anyone throughout this episode, by mm -hmm. the way? Just for people who aren't in the bubble? The uh, Glebe something crystal <laughs> lovers. Uh, Global Affairs Canada. Global Affairs Canada, thank <laughs> you. The, the Glebe Acolytes of Crystal. Yeah. I'm sure people who listen to this podcast, like, you probably already know that. But so, I just like whenever we introduce an acronym, to at least say it the first yes. time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I think... 
looking at you know some of the past accomplishments of small countries um, when they're really willing to sort of put the resources in um, act a little bit more independently like you do see some success Um, now the problem is also that you can't necessarily predict what's going to happen so Australia did not predict that a flight was going to be downed in eastern Ukraine no one saw that coming. Unless. If you did, I have questions. Unless. Um, but during Australia's term on the council, they were the ones who were able to bring together the permanent five. Um, they wrote um, and essentially worked to have passed a resolution that dealt with um, a short ceasefire in the region, the ability to um investigate and give UN officials access to the site help with things like repatriation of bodies um and so that's sort of an example uh, much like this is humanitarian aid in Syria uh one where a small state can really do a lot um and so perhaps part of it is you know selling yourself as the kind of small country that's going to step out and do that um, and perhaps nobody thought that Canada was going to be as good at doing things like that as Ireland and Norway. Ouch. <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, that's fair because I also wouldn't pick our government as one that is able to spearhead initiatives to completion and, yes. and, and make hard decisions. And perhaps that's a weakness of sort of very, like a very party branded bid is that you're indicating there's no necessarily continuity here. Right, you're saying like if we fall tomorrow and we get replaced by the conservatives, everything we just said, I don't know, who knows, right? Like, yeah, because a, it, yeah, it, it, it changes hands in a very real sense, and yeah. you you don't know so much as what you're voting for. If I mean, this sort of goes back to your guys' earlier point where you're choosing to view conservative and liberal foreign policy as homogenous. Yeah, I think it that's largely less is, important. But, yeah. I would say the if, UNSC, if that's your perspective, the UNSC I think would be an area of difference between the two parties in the sense that I think the conservatives, the conservative base, has a certain disdain for the institution, which is fine. It's not illegitimate, uh, but yeah, like I think that there's definitely a, a difference of opinion on the, within or between parties on that particular mm-hmm. institution. And I think you know, Canada doesn't acknowledge that we're a small country yes we're middle power middle power <laughs> we, love, we love saying a that. middle power that punches above our weight well we're gonna have to get over that <laughs> because we just got beat by some countries who are openly okay with being small countries yeah um and they're very confident in their in their yeah. small pants and their small suits um and so you know, Ireland. it's not anti-Irish. I'm sure they're all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is the common about leprechauns? <laughs> or like, I don't know, what's the Nordic equivalent? Like some kind of elf or dwarf? I don't know. But yeah, so all that to say that um, Ireland's willingness to stand up for small countries, you know, stand up to big powers. Except when it comes to big companies, okay. but not big companies. Yeah. yeah, they will absolutely not stand up to big companies. Yeah, and you know. Oh, top of the morning to you, Mr. Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'll be hiding your profits away and be bought of gold. <laughs> sorry. That's okay. I'm very sorry to the Irish who had to listen to that, if there are any. Um, I, I had to redeem my awful, awful, like, super 
just imprecise Irish accent earlier with a very over-the-top <laughs> stereotypical one. That was excellent. Um, but <laughs> Ireland was really willing to say, you know, we're a small country. We stand up for other small countries. Um, we're all about um, cooperation with multilateral bodies. Um, and actually sort of has a bit of a follow-through on that. Yeah. You know, Canada says... We're a medium-sized, important country. Yeah. We like multilateral cooperation. We're part of the G7. We're part of this group and this group. But behind the scenes, we're always going to vote how the U.S. So what you're saying is essentially we are a global Karen. Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> we, we like to call the global cops. The yeah, USA. the global manager. Like it's uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it does sound that. Like what you described there is the it's the Karen mindset. Speaking of. Speaking of cops, um, we love them. Lord, um, we, we haven't gotten to our RCMP segment this episode, I, and I don't think we'll have one. Now we will Fairness at this, at this um, I found it a little bit strange um, that you know Canada's first of all Canada's peacekeeping section is weak because we don't do any peacekeeping. That would, that would no, be um, And also, I mean, I'm not convinced that you have to campaign on that because I'm not convinced that that many countries care because we're all starting to see that it doesn't... When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail and peacekeeping isn't actually a big... It's not a great thing. And it's sort of changed in the world. There's no longer... Like, the dynamics of peacekeeping in the Pearson era have changed dramatically to today and today yeah. it's more of sitting in the midst of active conflicts and... But also, like, following the French into Mali on their, like, weird neo-imperialist fantasy. They love that, though. The right? French do love like, that. Like, that's... Anyways. But all that to say that because most of Canada's peacekeeping initiatives in the last while have actually been RCMP officers... Yeah, there's been a lot of training, police training yeah. as part of our... But even to this day, Canada's page still is proud of 4,000 police officers in 66 peace operations. And, like, maybe it's not the time to just sell yourself as the global cop. Um, I mean, they also brought a in-full-dress RCMP officer. So this this brings me to the oh. point... One of, one of the points I wanted to close on... It's also, on. like, maybe our international strategy shouldn't be this thing that is inherently broken and awful. What One of the things I wanted to close on was... What were the gimmicks Canada employed during this campaign? <laughs> you do love a good gimmick. Give, give me a little hit what of rage. The mascot? For what my... was the mascot for the campaign? <laughs> I don't think there was one. Um, good gimmicks. There was a Celine Dion concert. Yes, Celine Dion I'm sure there concert. was poutine and maple syrup. There I think was... we saw the pictures of the people with maple syrup. Yeah. Um, there were, yeah, there were the COVID masks that had, um, together ensemble on them. Oh my God. Very powerful statement. Uh, social distancing is the time that you want to promote together ensemble. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so I think, um, there were letter openers. That's what it yeah, was. Yeah, I was going to ask about the letter openers. The letter openers. <laughs> so I think our, our gift budget was really, really small. Um, mostly, I mean, Canadians don't like spending money on anything. That's so, very true, yes. Um, but then I noticed there's been mention of things like, oh, the sockeye salmon that was given out. Um, but I mean, some of that is, and from what I understand, that's already part of the sort of diplomatic goodie bag budget, which every country has. The crystal. <laughs> the crystal. <laughs> the um, so, have you ever explained the crystal thing on the show, by the way? No. We'll get to it at the end. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
Um, and so I think they relied on a lot of what we already used. Yeah. <laughs> um, so recycling what would have been just regular New York gifts um, for the purpose of making them Security Council gifts. Um, there you go. That's all, that's innovation. That's the yeah. spirit, really. That's a super cluster right there. <laughs> <laughs> the re-gifting super cluster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, we, uh, we certainly didn't splash out that much in the end. Um, our budget was only about two million dollars. Yeah. Um, plus, it's hard to divide the budget though, right? There's the yeah. salaries component. There's so the, the goodie bags, and then there's the international initiatives we're making an ODA that we're doing that's so branded as part would of. Would still get counted separately because that's monitored by the OECD. No, but it's sort of the o the ODA that which is official development assistance that we're announcing as part of our run like we're gonna go to car yeah, I don't think and that, i don't think that that would be counted in the security council budget counted well yeah, yeah that, that's that's, yeah. that's the distinction i'm trying to draw yeah, right so i don't think is if you a tip security council budget that will give you different numbers than if you're trying to do a holistic a more, yeah. what okay. what yeah. did we i'm doing rabbit ears what all did we spend right. on this run right? right and the x million in terms of trinkets and staff salaries and then on top of that there's sort of all of the announceables that were fed through yeah. the UNSC bid process. Yeah um, so I think a lot of what we did was actually sort of in reverse like we announced them not as part of the UNSC bid. There was a line in there that we made sure we talked about it um, but so I understand it was about two million dollars um, outside of salaries and outside of Okay. Yeah, it's, so, I think it's hard to parse the other stuff because it's yeah, like, exactly. are you going to do this anyway and you're just claiming it on top? Like yes. just saying, by the way, UNSC, like it's hard to exactly. say what would have happened otherwise. And so that is sort of... Um, I'm happy with the $2 million. All yeah, somewhat on <laughs> It's sort of the prioritization and the yeah. how you're selling it because, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think in the end it ended up about on par with Ireland, a lot less than Norway, a lot less than other Western European campaigns over the last few years. Mm -hmm. And obviously $1998 and $2020 are different, um, but there are multiple citations of um, $2 million being the budget in 1998 as well. Um, so, you know, adjusting for the time difference. $3 million. Uh. We really didn't really didn't spend that much obviously you know if that two million dollars is not worth it to you that's a different can of worms but yeah. comparatively um both historically and to our competitors it actually wasn't that much money um and again there were only throughout the last i guess four years about 10 to 11 staff specifically on it and that was additional sure. um but that is obviously within regular public servant salaries Sure. Um, and most, almost all of those people would have. They're going to be doing something. They were going to be doing something anyways. This is the lawyers on cases. This case costs us, you know, twenty million dollars to litigate. But those lawyers had to be doing something. We had to find right. jobs anyways. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much money. Um, I, I think it's hard and i'm probably gonna get pilloried for this but it is hard the to bold log. truth teller has logged on if, if, <laughs> if you have if you genuinely believe that the unsc seat is valuable it is hard to look at two million dollars um even if that two million dollar i mean i guess the question is why bother spending it on letter openers uh but 
hell, if letters op openers are what it takes, in terms of dollar uh, dollar figures, that's actually a very small amount of money for yeah, the government. Yeah, I mean, what's perhaps more significant is the the policy positions and the shifting of your policies and who you're having to appease yeah. and all of the other things is actually probably where the more serious cost is rather than $2 million for the federal government over at the same, five years. At the same time, I think you can look at that kind of thing the other direction too. Fiscal Hawk Laurent. No, but it's <laughs> just that like if something is important, which I, I do think like that Justin Trudeau and, and uh, François-Philippe Champagne and Christopher Freeland do believe that the UN Security Council is important, it's like, why only spend $2 million on it? Like, if you really think this is, like, a battle worth fighting that's going to bring legitimate yeah, gains. Yeah, that's like, just a few hundred thousand each year. Yeah, like, why didn't you years. just, like, put, like, a little little English on it? Like, a little elbow grease in there. Like, I don't know. It just seems to me that... And, like, I personally am fairly agnostic on the value of it. So, I, I you know, don't want to... Yeah. I'm not going to litigate that part of it. But it just seems to me that if you do think it's important, it is not a lot for government to spend. So... On something that it says is a priority. For me, um, you know, two million dollars on things, you know, all of the associated expenses, um, not that much money, but yeah. like that's the kind of thing you should try and keep as limited as possible. Sure. No, yeah, I'm not to say but, that we should have spent like fifty billion think, either, but you know, <laughs> where I think we could have shelled out a little bit more was actually on staff. Yeah. Um, especially since um, there's so little institutional memory. So we were last on the council twenty years ago. So nobody, like, there are so few people who... And know, the world has changed a lot. We've had 9-11 yeah. since then, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> just so there are so one few, thing. Yeah, there are so few people <laughs> with significant experience on the council who yeah. haven't retired. Yeah. Um, and, and also, like, in terms of, you know, <laughs> GAC in general's sort of level of internal expertise has been... Wait, you mean Nipsey kids on co-op terms? <laughs> Exactly, hurt by <laughs> or, or on casual, casual contracts for seven gonna, plus years. Are you gonna you gonna explain Nipsey? <laughs> no. Um, and so I think you know, ten to eleven, as I said, like smart, hardworking people, um, are probably stretched really thin, especially when they're constrained by the politics of the platform. You know, if the political level isn't giving you. A lot to work with in terms of a really good platform your diplomatic legwork is going to be even harder and then if there aren't enough of you um, it's a real uphill battle um, and so I think either way you know maybe more people to spread out the work more um, more think tanks <laughs> more time spent on developing some of the in-house expertise um, so I'd be interested to see going forward, you know, how much of the work and the labor done by these people, um, the knowledge they've gained and the expertise that they've developed is actually saved and preserved in a meaningful way for next time. Yeah. Or, you know, if it's another 10 years before there's another election we're participating in, and maybe another 20 years before we're on the council again. Um, like, don't let all of this knowledge now go to waste. Okay, two last questions for you. For sure. One, of that $2 million budget, we know there are letter openers. True. And other trinkets. Is it entirely trinkets? Because if it's entirely trinkets, I might take, I no, might take that is, back. A lot of it is, um, like, travel events. expenses. Okay, events. that's more reasonable. Um, <laughs> and probably, I imagine, um, some stuff. Um, crystal, definitely crystal. <laughs> Um, you know, some stuff like 
um, I think the design of the logo and everything was mostly internal. Okay. Um, but, you know, some graphic design. Translation, um, probably half that budget. Translation, perhaps. Um, also, potentially, you know, paying for external research. Um, McKinsey. No, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think was, so. Wasn't there an article about the research that they had hired Bob Ray or someone to consult on the? Yeah, it was Alan Rock to consult yeah. on the yeah. Security Council bid. Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know if Joe Clark was getting paid. He was acting as a uh, <laughs> as a like special rapporteur. Okay. Um. <laughs> but um. You know, other sorts of maybe technology services, um, any external training they were getting. Okay. Um, More than letter openers, all I have to say. Sure. Yeah, yeah so I, as far as I know, it was peanuts in terms of trinkets. Government spending. Yeah, um, and a lot of it was probably sort of travel professional services. Sure. Um, information services, stuff like that. So let, let's close it out on a, a future-looking note. Um it seems unlikely that we're going to run for the next seat available. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a few rounds. Sort of breaking UN etiquette, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what does the future of Canada's Security Council prospects look like? Hmm. I, I guess I, that, yeah. maybe I mean, that's I mean, too big of a question or too... I, I don't know that we can necessarily speak to the future of the prospects. But I think we can start looking ahead at long term what we want Canadian foreign policy to look like. And there are a lot of people out there, I think, calling for um, a major review, a white paper, et cetera. How do we think about... <laughs> oh, God. I love those. <laughs> How do we think about sort of the vision for Canadian foreign policy more broadly? Um, coming from this position of like, we don't have any direction. Um, but I think, while I think a sort of large review would be useful I think some of that needs to be being more honest with ourselves and saying you know what perhaps we do have a foreign policy in terms of larger vision and direction and perhaps we are coming down on the side of trade-offs of we're just going to do the thing where we follow the Americans. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps it needs to be a reflection on what are the actual trends yeah. in things we've done. Um, and are we willing to change that? Are we not? Are we yeah. not? Well, so, yeah. Cause... And that could also be a multi-party conversation. You know, I think... Yeah. I think... There's a genuine difference of opinion there that I think, like, the foreign policy consensus, as far as I basically understand it, is that we have a hard commitment to the sort of international institutions of and I can realize a bit but of embedded neoliberalism right of, Absolutely. of sort of trade and investment deals uh, and it's sort of interlocking web of them with you know different blocks of countries um, that are not easy to get out of so we're basically just trying to make the world safe for for you know, so, for so, I know, I know what you're oil companies in trench coats. <laughs> well, yeah, it would make the world safe for brands, right? Uh, I think, as I, I joked on Twitter the other day, is that like that, and to a large degree, that that was the sort of Washington consensus approach for a very mm-hmm. long time. I think the Washington consensus is less adhered to in Washington now than it is in many other places, and I think we've actually become one of its greatest champions, along with like the UK. Um, going really so but i just don't think that like 
it, it's funny because the foreign policy experts, I think, to a large extent, come from a class where that is so natural and obvious that for them oh, that isn't yeah. a foreign policy approach, right? It's like, well, of course we do that. That's just normal. Right. <laughs> That's the default option. Right. And I yeah. think sort of being honest about what the problems with that are yeah. and what a new what a new direction might look like if we want one. Yeah. And the Liberal Party of Canada might decide that they don't want one. I think they're very happy with what the we The Conservative have. Party yeah. of Canada might decide that they don't want one. Um, and we're going to have to see what that means. Um, Good. That's that's a good note to leave Also, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. We will leave it there. We're at an hour and ten minutes. Yeah. Caroline, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was great. And uh, one thing I do want to say real quick before we do sign off is that I, I think there's obviously the elephant in the room. We're recording this long episode about the UN. Uh, we, we do want to talk about, you know, other issues here that have come up in the last couple of weeks of, of the RCMP, of systemic racism, all that. We, we're not... Stay the, tuned for the next stay episode. Stay tuned, but also, you know, to some degree, we're not like the best or most valuable people to discuss this so speak for yourself no. <laughs> you can, I, so can, I can suggest future guests on those that, topics let's we're, talk about we're that always, yeah. and to everyone else we're always open to suggestions if for, you're who, an expert, for who to have on but we're really terrible at scheduling people yes. so there's that if you're a smart person and, and want to come and talk about that like by all means but yeah it's just we like we add no value to this conversation so uh, you know uh, that that's that thank you so much once thank again you. and uh, we'll see you guys next time Bye-bye. I think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. <laughs>